I'm pastor of leadership and development here at Chapel Street, but also a campus pastor at our South Street campus. But I began a long time ago, um, some 36 years ago, as youth pastor here. Looking back over the now 30, 35 years of student missions, what I've seen is what started as sort of an experimental thing. Maybe this will be good for kids. Maybe we can give them an experience of a different part of the world. Maybe it can challenge them to grow some. It's grown from that to a, to a major plank in our student ministries platform. Here in America, we live in kind of a cultural bubble, a bubble that's, that's very affluent compared to the rest of the world. And so I think it's easy for us to kind of conflate our, uh, our faith with our culture, our faith with our affluence. And I think kids are vulnerable to that. My name's Amy Heavey, and I grew up here at Chapel Street Church. My faith journey in high school really was impacted by these trips. And my, kind of the first ones, my domestic trips, more urban trips, really showed me that I have faith because I was raised in it, but it is also my job to then own my faith. From those experiences, you realize that people need Jesus just as much as I do, and, but it looks different in the context that you're in. And sometimes I think you can walk in having an expectation or a prediction of how this might look, how I think it should look, but God shows up in totally different ways and then you're changed by watching the people you get to work with be changed as well. Uh, I'm Trent Santi. I'm a 17-year-old who goes to Geneva High School, and I've been going to Chapel Street since I was in preschool. So I went on the Minnesota mission trip uh, going into my sophomore year, and this was the first mission trip opportunity I've been presented with, and it was a really awesome experience for me to be able to help create a community garden for the neighborhoods there, being able to set up a VBS for the kids to come in and hang out. On my second trip, one of my highlights there was definitely uh, we got the opportunity to go to a train station in the city of in Minneapolis, and we were going uh, through the train station finding homeless people to pray over, and that for me was an eye-opening experience and something that I for sure can say that I I was given more confidence to be able to go out to the strangers and pray over them. That for sure was something that I could take away from this trip. Through all these mission trips, it's just shown me that no matter the background that someone has, it's, it's God's child and you should love them the same as you love them, your, your brother, your sister, your mom, dad, your best friend. My wife and I, um, years ago, uh, worked uh, in, at Wheaton College. Uh, my wife helped uh, as an instructor in a class of Wheaton College students. And so we, for a couple of years we taught a semester of this class and we came to believe that at the college level we could tell upon first meeting a, a, a class of college students, how many of them had had experiences in high school where they'd been overseas. We, we could just tell by their worldview, by, how, by their maturity, by how they talked about themselves. And we, that really influenced me that, that this is really important because you can see it in their lives if they've had this experience. So my name is Tessa Wagner and my family's been going to Chapel Street for about two years now. So I went to Cabo in March of 2023 and this trip was for high school seniors, current seniors, and it was really focusing on how to finish strong so that we can start our next chapter strong. So we stayed 
in a house really close to Ramon and Vanessia's, and they hosted us, they cooked our meals. Ramon is a pastor in that area, and they do a lot of local ministry and helping out their friends, and my group did a lot of painting, and we helped seal a roof. That was a really cool experience, just to kind of like get to know the family that we were serving. Thinking about Ecuador and Cabo, what I'm hoping to just remember and stick with me is just how God's, how, how he's worked in those like special moments. Just remembering like the tangible ways that I've seen him work because I feel like mission trips are a really great way to just like keep your eyes open for God. Missions and experiencing God is forever a part of my life. I would not be who I am today spiritually if I had not gone on any of these missions trips. Our student missions program that's developed over these years has had tremendous impact. You know, our four sons all grew up here at Chapel Street. They grew up in our church and they all had multiple student mission experiences in our youth ministries. All of them would say, of all the things that they grew up with in church, among the very most important in their faith stories are student, student missions. And watching what happened in my boys as they had these experiences was dramatic in our family and I'm grateful for those things. So today we are uh, celebrating student uh, missions here at Chapel Street and dedicating our students as they head out. Uh, that video showed the very beginnings of our student ministries, uh, mission programs. In 1987, I took the first group to Mexico. We had seven students on that team. Uh, this summer, we'll send 140 uh, high school and middle school students out to serve somewhere. Uh, think of that growth over those years. And so we're going to dedicate those teams uh, today. Uh, the students will be um, out in the lobby following the service with little prayer cards to remind you to pray for these students throughout the summer. There are three trips this year. There's the, a trip to uh, the Twin Cities in, in Minneapolis-St. Paul. There's a trip to Milwaukee. And then there's a trip to Ecuador as well. And they'll be going over the next month or six weeks or so, uh, all 140 students. So we're going to pray for them today. And then... Um, we will move into our message. Let's bow in prayer. Lord God, how we thank you for the legacy we have here at Chapel Street of caring about the world and caring about our, our next generation students and children. And those two things come together in our missions uh, program. And so we want to dedicate these students and their leaders as they head out this summer to serve you in some way, in some part of the world. And we just pray a couple of things. First of all, that you will use them for your purposes that uh, the people they serve will sense your love and your care through their service. And we pray that you would do in each student uh, what, you've, uh, what you've chosen them uh, to do, that you would uh, work in their hearts, grow them up, help them to see how big your world is and how big you are in your love for the world. So we thank you for them, for their families. Keep them in peace until their students come home uh, after their journeys. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, years ago, when our uh, four sons that you saw on the video were younger, much younger, <clears throat> in elementary school and, um, and younger, they were just starting to learn about how the world works, just starting to learn about authority uh, at home and at school and, and with coaches, perhaps, and new sports. And we were at the dinner table one night, and one of our sons, I no longer remember which one exactly, piped up out of nowhere and said, who's the boss of our family? And immediately, all four boys 
and Lorene looked straight at me. I wasn't really prepared to take on that question at that moment. I wasn't really thinking about it. But as I recall, I said something like, well, well boss probably isn't the word I would use for our family. But, but as dad, uh, I am responsible for our family. And I'm supposed to be the leader. But before I could finish my thought, another uh, son jumped in and said, so if you're the boss, what's mom? And as I prepared an appropriate biblical response, um, thinking in my head, well, even though I'm the leader, uh, mom and I are, are, are equal partners in marriage and we're supposed to reflect the relationship of Christ to the church. But the, before I could even finish that thought, the son who brought up the whole thing in the first place said, I know, mom's the queen, she said. <laughs> and we left it right there. As you know, we're in a series from Colossians. We've got one more week to go next week called The Fullness of God. And the Apostle Paul has been reminding the Colossian believers and us through this series about who Jesus is and what he's done and what it means to live in him. Last week we saw Paul start to get real. And by real I mean he started to get very practical and personal. He said that because we are now in Christ, and the fullness of Christ dwells in us because Jesus has given us a new identity because we are chosen, holy, and beloved. Therefore, we are to put on new clothes. And he describes those new clothes in words like compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, and love. And then he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So now he moves on to answer an even more practical and more personal question. Here's the question. What does all this look like in the central relationships of our lives? What does all of it look like in the central relationships of our lives? We're going to read from Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, going through chapter 4, verse 1. The words will be on the screen. You can look in your own Bibles. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Okay, so this paragraph uh, is typically called the household code uh, by scholars. And it might be one of the most debated paragraphs uh, and among some, some of the most uh, offensive passages in the entire New Testament. And Paul uh, goes into this household code because the ancient Roman culture was very familiar with what we call household codes. And he simply wants to demonstrate how all he's been saying how the gospel, how Jesus transforms their understanding of these central relationships. Paul's essentially outlining what the gospel looks like in three areas of life. Marriage, family, and work. First, the gospel for marriage. 
A number of years ago, I was on a team that went to Turkey, our first group that went to Turkey. Uh, Rita, sitting right down here, was with me uh, on that trip. Um, and for a time, we were in the far eastern part of Turkey, the, which is the most conservative part of the country, religiously, where over 99% of the people are Muslim. And one day, we were walking back to our hotel after a tour of the city, and I noticed across the street uh, a couple, looked like a man and his wife, just walking. I just happened to look over, um, and it was the man was in a dark suit, and a woman walking about uh, six or seven feet behind him, a couple steps behind him, in a full covering called a burqa, and it began to rain. And the woman was carrying an umbrella as she walked behind her husband. As it began to rain, the husband stopped, and he reached back, and he put his hand out, and his wife opened the umbrella. Let's see if I can get this one to work. And then she handed it to him, and he took it, put it over himself, and walked and left her walking in the rain behind him. So keep that image in your head as we talk about this next section. Paul writes in verse 18, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now Paul turns his attention to marriage here. But before we talk about what he's actually teaching, I want to point out what he does not say here. He does not say that everyone should be married. He does not say that, uh, in some, that if you're not married, that those who are unmarried are somehow less than God's best for them and what he wants for them. He doesn't say any of those things. In other places in the New Testament, Paul actually extols the beauty and value of living a single life in Christ. But what he is saying is that if you are married, or if you are to become married, this is what the gospel looks like in that relationship. And he starts with, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Now, to our ears, in this culture, at this particular time, this sounds almost hopelessly out of touch with the modern world, right? Some read or hear a word like submit and think immediately, really? Uh, what Neanderthal misogynist wrote that? But before you go down that road uh, too far, let's back up just a bit. The ancient Roman culture of that day was dominated by what historians call the pater familias. That's a Latin phrase meaning the father of the family. That is, the oldest male in a household, usually the husband or father, sometimes grandfather, had absolute authority over the family. His wife and children were considered his legal property, his possessions. So the pater familias had absolute rule over the household and children. If his children did something to, to anger him or to displease him, uh, he had the legal right to disown them, to sell them as slaves, or even to kill them. It was legal. The pater familias had the right to decide, for example, whether to keep a newborn baby or not, or to just abandon it and expose it. It was a common practice of the day called exposure, leaving a child to die, usually female children. Interestingly, the early Christians were known to adopt these abandoned babies. So that historical and cultural context helps us understand what he's saying here. He gives two sets of instructions. First to wives. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The word submit means literally to place oneself under, in this context, to voluntarily come under the leadership of another. Notice, Paul does not say, wives, obey your husbands. He says, submit yourselves. This is a completely different thing. He's saying the wife chooses to put herself under the umbrella of her husband's care and responsibility. 
So he willingly walks under the umbrella that he holds. Second, Paul speaks to husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. We all know the word love there, the great New Testament word agapeo, which means to love unconditionally, a love that chooses the best for another regardless of their state or behavior. It's the word most often used in the Bible to describe the love of God himself. So he's saying, love your wives, don't be harsh with them. In other words, don't treat them with bitterness. He's simply telling husbands to not speak to their wives or act toward their wives in an unloving or unchristlike manner. Now, go back to the umbrella for a second. When that husband took the umbrella and put it over his own head, uh, that's a picture, I think, of that ancient pater familias culture. I'm the husband. I have the power. I have the privilege. You exist as my wife for my comfort and my well-being. Pater familias. Paul's saying no. No, the gospel changes all that. Husbands, you are to love your wives as God loves. And love says you exist for her well-being. Love demands that you hold the umbrella for her. Wives, he's saying you are to willingly come under the umbrella of your husband. Not because you're his possession. Not because he owns you. Not because you fear him. But rather because of his provision and care. And notice the subtle but significant change in motivation here. It's not because he is the pater familias and has all the power. It's because it is fitting in the Lord. Now this would have been a, a radical, even shocking thing to say in that day. Because husbands or fathers had absolute and unquestioned authority. They were not compelled to love their families. They were empowered to rule over their families and even their wives. Some years ago, a woman called me and set up an appointment. And as she came in, um, realized very quickly she needed to talk about her marriage, which had become, in her words, uh, painful, angry, and even abusive. So my standard practice is to make sure that if a woman comes to see me, she, I want her to tell her husband she's come to see me, so there's no misunderstanding there, and, and to give him a chance to get into the process of counseling or some sort of discussion about their marriage. The very next day, I got a phone call in my office from her husband, which I first thought was a, a good thing. It turned out he was really, really angry, and he was angry at me. Uh, he demanded on the phone that I do my job. He said, why don't you do your job? I said, what do you mean, do my job? And then he quoted this verse to me. He said, the Bible says wives are to submit to their husbands. So you should be telling her she should do that. She should do what I say, and you're not telling her that. She's not doing that. Do your job. And I said, hold on a second, sir. Can you tell me the next line in that passage? Silence. I let it go on for an uncomfortable time. And then I said, here's what it says. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. How are you doing with that one? Silence, and then he hung up on me. 
In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul goes a bit deeper into this relationship. In Ephesians 5, he writes, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, this is the, the mutual submission in all Christian relationships. Mutual submission, mutual respect, mutual service. And then he demonstrates that in marriage by writing, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. That is, respect his leadership, be willing to walk under the umbrella that he is holding. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love sacrificially. Love by laying down your life. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So what is the gospel for marriage, according to Paul? Marriage is to reflect the relationship between Christ and his church. The husband is a love with a love that's sacrificial. The wife is to respond to that love with respect and willing trust and submission to his care. So the gospel transforms marriage, Paul says. Secondly, he talks about the gospel for families. Gospel for families. Back in my student ministry days, which you saw a little bit of there on the video, I used to lead a high school uh, Bible study group on Wednesday nights. And we would have uh, 60 or 70 students in a rented uh, facility somewhere. And at the end of each night, after teaching in small groups and so forth, uh, we would always have a little short time uh, for prayer. And I would ask the students anything they wanted me to pray for, and I would pray and wrap up the evening. And usually there were the typical um, prayer requests you could expect. You know, uh, uh, my grandmother's sick, or I have a test coming up this week, or a friend of mine's going through a hard time. Uh, and then at this one particular night, a new kid raised his hand. He'd never been there before. He came with a friend just that night, so it was his very first time. So I was really surprised that he, that he wanted me to pray for something, because usually kids didn't do that right away. But he did. He raised his hand. So when I called on him, he said, um, can, you, uh, can you pray that I won't get grounded? And I thought, hmm, might be a story there. So I said, mind telling me a little bit more? And he said that the day before, the very day before, he and his buddy had stayed out late at night, past curfew, and realized it was so far past curfew, they didn't even bother going home that night. They went to school the next morning, and after school, uh, he hung out with his friends, and then he came straight to the high school Bible study, and he had not been home yet for two days. And he knew that after the meeting, he was going home, and he knew his parents would be mad, and he didn't want to get grounded. And I said something like, well, thanks for sharing that. I really appreciate it, but I... I don't think I can pray for that. And the whole group looked a little shocked and surprised. I said, but I'll tell you what I can pray. I said, I can pray that you'll have the humility and the courage to go home tonight, apologize to your parents for disrespecting them and disregarding their boundaries, and that you submit yourself to whatever discipline they see fit. Can I pray that for you? And he went, uh, okay. <laughs> so that's what I prayed. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Again, notice two sets of instructions. First to children, second to fathers. And the word implies parents, mothers and fathers, although especially fathers in this social context. And remember the whole context here. <coughs> Excuse me. The spiritual context is what does new life in Christ look like in our central relationships? The cultural context is the pater familias, the rule of the father. For the children, the issue is authority. Obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Now, in that culture, that would have been totally expected, at least the first part of it, obey your parents. Totally expected. 
Children were the property of their father, and therefore they had to obey. The surprising thing here is why they should obey. Not because the father could disown them or sell them as slaves, but because, what, it pleases the Lord. But the truly revolutionary, countercultural thing here is what Paul says to fathers. He says, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged or lose heart, the word means. The word provoke means arouse to anger, to embitter. The issue is the manner in which authority is exercised. It's not obey or else, obey or I disown you, or I sell you as a slave. It implies a relationship of nurture and care. How do parents, how can we as parents, if you're a parent, provoke or discourage? Let me just suggest three ways. There are probably many, many more. But first, we can discourage by failing to pay attention or by neglecting. Now, years ago, I was on a trip uh, with high school students, uh, and one evening I was sitting around a Pizza Hut table with six or seven kids, and they got to talking about parents and the, sort of the goofy things parents do. And it was all in fun, and most of them had, you could tell, had, had good relationships with their mom and dad. And one, one kid didn't say anything the whole time. Um, he was not from our church, but he came on the trip. And after a lot of discussion and laughter, he finally spoke up. And what he said, I still remember to this day, he said, my old man cares more about his lawn than he does me, he said. Cares more about his lawn than he does me. Failure to pay attention or neglect provokes and discourages because failure to pay attention is a failure to love. Secondly, failure to discipline. Failure to discipline. Uh, After uh, that same high school Bible study one night, uh, a few years later than the story I told earlier, Another group of students was hanging out afterward, and they were, they were overheard them talking about curfews. They were kind of comparing notes on the curfews the parents set for them. One would say, oh, my, my weekends I can stay out till 10 o'clock, and they would say, oh, I've got to be in by 10.30. And they were kind of bemoaning the fact that they had curfews they had to adhere to. And then finally, a, another kid said, um, I don't have a curfew. The whole discussion stopped. He said, I don't have a curfew. They went, what? What do you mean you don't have a curfew? He goes, I, I can stay out as late as I want. My parents don't care how long I stay out. And the kids were like, whoa, that's amazing. You have the coolest parents, they were saying. But I knew something about that young man. I knew that when he said his parents didn't care, he meant it. Because both his parents were struggling with addiction and their own lives, and they had long since stopped caring what happened to their 17-year-old son. And he was craving discipline. He was craving that structure. He was craving their love. Failure to set boundaries, failure to discipline is a failure to love. And finally, pressure to achieve. I don't know how it was in Paul's day. Something like this was probably happening. But in our world today, children feel a great pressure to achieve in their lives. Many of our children struggle with a sense of failure, of falling behind their peers, of not being good enough, failing to meet their parents' expectations, and and social media actually plays a big part in that pressure today. But as parents, we can provoke or discourage our children when we push them to achieve so we can feel better about the job we've done as parents. Paul is saying here, our primary job, (coughs) excuse me, as parents is not to produce high-achieving kids. We want that for them. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but that's not our primary job. Our primary job is to help our kids understand who they are in Christ. Who they are. Chosen, holy, 
beloved. So what's the gospel for families? Paul is saying that Christ, being in Christ, living in Christ, is not only the central identity of a person, an individual, but can also be the central identity of a family. Where the peace of Christ rules, where the word of Christ dwells richly, where parents model love and kindness and forgiveness, even as they teach discipline their children. And where children obey, not because they're fearful, but because it pleases the Lord. So the gospel transforms families. Thirdly, in this passage, we see the gospel for work. Verse 22. Paul writes, Bond servants, obey. I'll explain that word bond servants in just a minute. Bond servants, obey <coughs> in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Once again, for the third time, we see two sets of instructions. First to what he calls bondservants, and then to masters. Now, to understand what Paul's saying here, again, we have to look at the cultural context. The word translated bondservants is the Greek word doulos, which can also be translated as slave or servant. And we hear a word like that, we kind of recoil, and rightfully so, but the word uh, bondservants does not uh, mean in Paul's day what it means to us today when we think of American history. In Roman times, the term doulos could refer to a wide variety of roles and occupations, from street sweepers to teachers, even to doctors. Up to one-third of the entire population of the Roman Empire were doulos, or bondservants, for one reason or another. Either willingly, or they were captured peoples brought in, and they were working for a free man or a free person. Uh, so they had no option rather than, than to work for someone else. That's how, how the whole economy worked. Doulos, or bondservant, is also the word most often used to describe a follower of Christ in the New Testament. Paul, Timothy, James, Peter, Jude, all referred to themselves as doulos, bondservants of Christ Jesus. So for us today, it perhaps is most helpful to think of Paul's instructions here to be about the employer-employee relationship. That's the closest thing in our culture. As an employee, you give yourself uh, to an employer to do his or her bidding <coughs> Sorry, for so many hours a week in exchange for pay, in exchange for money. So when you're at work, your time and your energy belong to your employer. So in a way, you become like a bondservant. The word translated masters is the word kyrios, which also is translated lord. It's the word used for the Lord Jesus Christ. So the kyrios master is one for whom the doulos bondservant worked. Paul is saying that the gospel impacts that relationship in two ways. First, he says, the responsibility of the bondservant or the employee is to obey your earthly master, your boss, or do your job. But Paul again points to a dramatic change in motivation. He says that now because of your new identity in Christ, you aren't just working to look good for your boss. You're actually working for the Lord himself. So work to exceed expectations. And then he talks about the responsibility of the master or the boss. And this would have been the surprise in that culture. Because in that culture, the master had no responsibility 
for the well-being of the servant. This is what he says. Provide what is just and fair. Make sure your bond servants, your employees, have what they need and are treated with justice. First, because they are people loved by God. And second, because you too have a master to whom you are accountable. So, what is the gospel for work? Employees, you have a new identity in Christ. Employers, you also have a new identity in Christ. And that new identity, which is to clothe you with compassion and kindness and humility and patience and forgiveness and love, is to change the way you work. And it's to change the way you treat those who work for you. Paul is saying that the gospel, our faith in Christ, is not just about the forgiveness he offers us as individuals and the hope of heaven he gives us as individuals. But the gospel is to actually shape, is to actually shape the central relationships of our lives. It impacts where we really live every day, in marriage, in family, and in our work. Uh, years ago, again, when our boys were little, <clears throat> I was doing something important, like watching a Bears game or something, when one of them, maybe five or six years old, come, came running to me uh, with a scraped knee. Uh, I, so I went to the bathroom, he had kind of a little bloody knee, so I went to the bathroom, dug through everything until you could find the Band-Aids, because you never can find one when you need one, but I found a Band-Aid, came out, put it on his knee, patched him up. And just as I finished that little bit of fatherly triage, uh, a younger son, who was maybe three or four years old, called out from upstairs, somewhere upstairs, Daddy, I need a Band-Aid too. <clears throat> At first, I pretended not to hear uh, because I knew he just wanted the Band-Aid because his older brother got a Band-Aid, you know, and the game was on. I'm, I'm doing something important. And he calls out again, I need a Band-Aid. I yelled back, you don't need a Band-Aid. He said, I need a Band-Aid. I said, is there blood? It was quiet for a moment. And then came a disappointed, no. I said, then you don't need a Band-Aid. He had no answer for that one. Back to the game. And then I heard the soft crying, just little whimpering crying coming from upstairs. My little boy was crying, and it slowly dawned on me that maybe what was hurting my son was not a scraped knee, but a, but a wounded heart. Maybe in his three-year-old way, he was wondering if I cared for him the same way that I cared for his older brother with the scraped knee. So I got up, dug out another Band-Aid, and put it on his perfectly good knee. So what's the gospel look like in marriage? What's the gospel look like in a family? What's the gospel look like at work? Compassion, kindness, patience, humility, forgiveness, love. It looks like Jesus. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of the gospel, the power of your love, your grace, and your word to transform our hearts and lives. But more than that, to also transform the central relationships of our lives, our marriages, our families, and our work. And now we ask you to prepare our hearts as we once again come to your table. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to the table of the Lord with the bread and cup. The table belongs to the Lord, not to Chapel Street Church. So if you're visiting with us today, 
or you've been here just for a few weeks and you've put your faith in the Lord, please feel welcome to share the bread and cup with us. As the trays are passed out, there are two cups stacked together in each spot. Take both cups, hold them, tell everybody has received, and I'll lead us through the remembrance of the Lord's table. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, for this whole series in Colossians, we've been talking a lot about the fullness of Christ. What, that, what it means to have the fullness, your fullness, dwell in us. And now as we come to your table and hold again the bread and cup, they are simply symbols of your fullness. The fullness of your love, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness, your promises, and your hope. So fill us again with that which you want to give each one of us by your spirit that dwells within us as we hold bread and cup. In Jesus' name, amen. The New Testament tells us that on the same night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus met with his disciples for what we call the Last Supper. And during that meal, he took bread, he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them with these words, Take and eat, this is my body given for you. Do this remembrance of him. After the bread, he also poured a cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sin. The Apostle Paul reminds us that as followers of Jesus, we drink this cup each time and we remember him until he comes again. Do this in remembrance of him. In response to his great love, we give him our life, our all. In light of that, please hear our benediction for this morning. Go now in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him.